Our gospel reading this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. Now, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us, and Lord, we do ask that this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed that you would help us to be those who hear your word. Now, we ask that you would... um, that you would speak to us from your word this morning in a way that doesn't just bounce off deaf ears or hard hearts. But Lord, we ask that you would speak to us in a way that it goes, that your word goes deep into our hearts and to our lives. Or that we know better this morning who you are and who we are to be in relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate And we're satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Then our New Testament reading as from the book of Galatians, it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 26, which is all of chapter 5. And as Paul continues his letter to the church in Galatia, uh, specifically addressing, uh, in parts here, people who are wanting to take on circumcision as the sign of the Old Covenant, as though they were still under the Old Covenant, forgetting that in Jesus we are under the New Covenant. Um, So here's how he addresses some of that and some other things. Uh, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 26. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await Uh, by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that uh, you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. No laugh? Okay. He's being funny there. You can laugh at him. (laughs) You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. I do think it is good from time to time to have sort of the helpful reminder that our modern day partisanship, which has become so commonplace and taken for granted in our culture, is uh, listed basically as part of the acts of the flesh and not listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Something to keep in mind. As we turn now to our sermon text, Looking at Genesis chapter 49, verses 29, or starting with verse 29, and going on through Genesis chapter 50, verse 14, uh, we are getting to the very end of the book of Genesis. We mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again next week, because next week will be the last of the book of Genesis. And um, I want to remind everybody again as we get into this, that this is... Uh, It is the beginning book of the Bible. You knew that already. But it is uh, a book that the name of it even is in the beginning, and that's what it means. And uh, and so we see the beginnings of all these things. When Tim Mackey of the Bible Project was asked one time how people could understand their Bible better, and I've told you this before too, 
say, how do I, how can I understand my Bible better? Like you seem to know uh, so much about the whole Bible and I would like to know the whole Bible better. How do I do that? And his response to that was read the book of Genesis 50 times. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, and he talked about that one time where he's like, and I'm, I'm serious about that response because you see in the book of Genesis the beginnings of so many things that the whole rest of the Bible is uh, filling out. And, and so you kind of see things in seed form that then grow later, whether that is um, things that are problematic or whether those are the promises of God. You see all of this beginning in Genesis and then carrying on from there. If you kind of miss Genesis, you sort of pick up at some point in the story, and you're not even sure what the story is as you're going through. And so that's why we have been in Genesis, and we've been going through, and the whole idea, the way that we've been going through, is to try to give an overview rather than a really, really detailed uh, going through this. And... Um, that said, this is our 61st sermon in the book of Genesis. So, you know, we've gone real quickly, haven't we? Um, but there are 50 chapters in Genesis. So it has been more of an overview uh, in that sense. And this morning, as we are nearing the end of Genesis, it is important to see what kinds of things are covered right there at the end. And so we're going to do this sort of a bookend um, with sermon series. When we finish the book of Genesis, we're actually going to go to the other end of the Bible and look at the book of Revelation. And so we'll see how things begin and also how the story ends. And so we get uh, both sides of that. But even in Genesis, we've looked at the beginning and the middle, and now we're at the end of the book of Genesis. And seeing how the end of the book uh, relates to things at the beginning of the book, I think will be very helpful for us as well. And again, we'll get uh, some of that even more so next week. Um, But for today, as I say, we are looking at Genesis 49, starting in verse 29 and going on uh, to 50, 14. And and you may have had a conversation similar to the one that Jacob has with Joseph here. This is um, an important conversation to have probably multiple times in your life with multiple people. And uh, it's a conversation nobody ever wants to have, but it's the conversation that kind of starts, when I die, dot, dot, dot. And you start making arrangements for, hey, when I die, here's what I want funeral-wise or burial-wise, or where, to, uh, uh, where I want to be buried or whether I even want to be buried. Um, here's what to do with some of my stuff, or here's some of the people that I want to be taken care of in this way, or here are some of the messages that I would like for you to communicate for me. We have those kinds of conversations. You've probably already had some of those in your life, and you probably have more to come. This is one between Jacob and Joseph. And if you remember who Jacob and Joseph are, uh, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, uh, and he's also... Jacob, also known as Israel, and Joseph is his son. Joseph has been his favorite son, uh, which he made very known. So his brothers got jealous, sold him into slavery in Egypt. God has raised him up uh, to being a high ruler in Egypt. And now the whole family has come down to Egypt. We learned uh, earlier that Jacob is, uh, 
It's pretty old. <laughs> He's, I think, like 140 at this time, uh, or at least he was in an earlier chapter. And now he gets Joseph uh, and his sons together. And here we go. Verse 29. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew, up, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him. My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. And let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mitzrayim. The, so, Joseph, so Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Cheery stuff, right? No. This is, uh, we've been, we followed Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob all the way to the end of their lives. And in, uh, in this moment, we see as Jacob is dying in Egypt and he tells his sons, here's what I want you to do when I die, to bury me back in the land of Canaan. And then we see after he dies, well, that's exactly what they do. Joseph goes to Pharaoh, gets permission to actually go uh, back to Canaan, and doesn't just go by himself. Did you notice that it was a very large company? He's got military procession. His chariots and horsemen also went up with him. His whole family goes. This is a, uh, a funeral that is going to be far away, and, uh, but it is one it is like a military funeral with honors kind of thing. They, the Egyptians mourned 
for Jacob for 70 days. I saw in one commentary that they, uh, that it was a way of saying that they, it was close to how much they would mourn for the king of Egypt. They would mourn for 72 days for the king of Egypt. And so when they're mourning for 70 days for, um, for Jacob, it's like the highest honor that you could give uh, to Jacob, who had come in as someone who's not from there. And, and yet there was a respect given to him, even uh, in his death, that is noteworthy. And uh, by the way, this, when they're making this journey for this funeral, and there are all these people going with them and all that kind of thing, uh, that's, a, that's a trek. Um, just imagine you are without a vehicle of any sort, and somebody says, hey, will you join me for this funeral that's taking place? Um, it's going to be up by Weatherford. You're just going to have to get there on foot. And, you know, maybe, maybe with some horses or something, but, like, it's that far away. That's how far they're traveling from, and that it would be at the closest, by the way. So, like, the nearest edge of Goshen, Goshen up to uh, Hebron, where they're headed. And, um, anyway, it's a long way, and it's a large company. And they are all in, this is, these are big honors. And so we're seeing several things happen here as we get to the end of the book of Genesis. One is uh, we have been talking about how the family of Abraham was supposed to bring blessing to the world, right? And we have seen them fail time and time again to do that. But we've also seen some times of success where they have been bringing blessing to the world. And this seems like one of those times where we're going, hey, wait a second. Something must have happened here that was a blessing to the people of Egypt in such a way that they would show this kind of honor and respect to Jacob after he dies. There are, uh, there's a, one of the kings of uh, Israel, I believe it is, where it says that, you know, he died and like no one was sad about it. And you're like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> like, you got to be kind of a jerk. <laughs> Maybe really a lot of a jerk for um, for when you die to have nobody be sad about it. And here you have Jacob dies and this whole other country is like, we are really sad about it. We're really sad that this guy's gone. And so you go, okay, there, there's something special there, whether it is to do with Jacob himself or uh, kind of extended because of Joseph and what he has done for the people. But there has been such a blessing to Egypt because of this family that they are giving this kind of honor. And so we are seeing some of that that we've been looking for this whole time is is coming around, that they have been a blessing to the people around them. Um, But there's uh, there's another thing going on here, and that is the promise the promise that God made, not just for the blessing to everybody else, but also for this land where that family is going to be. And right now they're not there. And that's part of what comes through when Jacob is talking to his sons and he says, hey, when I die, here's where I want you to bury me. And it's not in Egypt. Why does he not want to be buried in Egypt? Does he hate Egypt that much? No, he doesn't. (laughs) But that's not where God had promised that his family was going to be. And so... By saying, I want to be buried in Canaan, it is a way of, even after his death, 
saying, I believe that God is going to be faithful to his promise. I believe that even though right now our whole family is in Egypt, someday they're going to be back there. And so I want you to go ahead and just believing that that is going to be the case someday, I want you, when I die, to go ahead and take me there now. And so we are seeing uh, this trust in the promises of God that as he has been making promises throughout, we're actually, (laughs) I mean, he's made promises throughout and sometimes people believe it and sometimes they don't. And here it's like we're seeing them believe in the promises of God. We're also seeing something else. And this is... uh, the whole ceremonial everything. I mean, there's the embalming. I mean, that's a, an Egyptian practice, but also one that's probably going to be necessary for a trip that's this long. But then there's all of the, uh, when they get to, what was the, the place, the, the threshing floor of Atad. And when they get there in verse 11, this is when the... Uh, no, verse 10. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. And that's why it's called Elam Mitzrayim, um, which means mourning of the Egyptians. What's this about? Why... All the mourning, why all the extended mourning? Why seven days of mourning? I mean, don't they know by this point? People die. You move on. Yeah, I mean, maybe be sad for a little bit, but you you move on. Or don't they know the promises of God uh, that go farther than the grave? Can't they just say, he's in a better place now? Smile, move on. Perhaps they could, but I think here uh, they are doing better than what we do often. And they are giving time and space on purpose to allow for the grief that needs to take place. Because here's the thing. One way of looking at the world is to say death is so natural. Death is a part of life. Everywhere you look, death is what you see. And so when it happens, we shouldn't be surprised. We should just take it in stride and just keep going. But every soul feels that's wrong. And there's another way of looking at every, looking at all the death that we see that saying every death is in some sense a violation of God's good creation. That it is evidence of the brokenness of his good creation. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, when at the very beginning, and God has created everything, and he steps back and he says, that is very good. How much death had we seen at that point? None. 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 And when we skip all the way to the end, and we see, and there are plenty of promises between uh, that point and, and then, 
the end, it says there will be no more death. You have promises between now and then of uh, the lion and lamb laying down together, that kind of thing. You can't have that. One would kill the other one. No. It doesn't have to be that way. That all of the death and the destruction that we see and we take for granted as a natural part of this world is apparently not natural. There's a great line in a, an Andrew Peterson song. Uh, the song is called Come Back Soon. And it's this longing for the day when all will be made right again. And there's a line in the song where he says, If nature is red in tooth and in claw. That comes from a Tennyson poem uh, talking about all the violence we see, that the red of the tooth and the claw, the violence and the bloody destruction. And he says, if nature is red in tooth and claw, then it seems to me that she's the outlaw. That basically everything has been um, set up from Genesis 1 for the flourishing of life. And that what we see in the biblical story is as you get uh, further on, that death does enter, but as a result of sin. And that is where the brokenness comes in, and that is one of the things that uh, is that will be redeemed. Um, and I think as Christians sometimes, we know that Jesus has defeated death, and we know that there is life after the grave. And we know uh, that we have in him, you know, wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so one of the things we do is we tend to rush past the first half of that sentence and we get onto the second half and we go, the wages of sin is death. Sure, yeah, we know that. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's where we want to have our focus. And for the most part, that's true. But there needs to be time and space to recognize that the wages of sin is death that the brokenness that is a part of this world is a part of this world. And that there is pain and there is sorrow and there are tears now, though there won't be someday. There are now. And that uh, what Paul tells us is that we are not to to grieve like uh, the pagans. We're not to grieve like people who don't have hope. But we are to grieve. We grieve differently because we do have hope. We know that this is not the end of the story. But there is still grief. And so what we see, uh, Joseph and all the Egyptians and everybody doing is making a space for that. Let's go. Let's go to this other place. And when we get there, let's set aside seven days where we are going to acknowledge the brokenness of this world. And the pain that it causes, that even though there will be victory from the grave, that even though there will be life after death, right now there's death. And right now there's separation. And right now there's grief and there is sorrow and we miss him. And we grieve the brokenness of a world where uh, death seems to reign. And I think we would do well even as Christians, to learn from what they're doing here. There are, as you probably know, the famous five stages of grief. If I were to give you the pop quiz right now, okay, I won't. 
denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. You know that those are the stages that people tend to go through with any kind of loss and that they tend to come at varying times and in varying um, intensities, like waves crashing over you. Although I also heard uh, someone say about that, that it's like waves that are crashing over you, but they're taking you somewhere. And I think sometimes that the pain is so much, we want to just skip that process. And because we try to skip the process, we don't get to where that process takes us. And this is uh, kind of a way of making space for that. Acknowledging the brokenness, acknowledging um, that yes, there is, uh, there are still the good promises that we have to look forward to. But if we just skip straight to the end, the good news isn't even as good. It's when we have acknowledged the pain and the loss and just how bad it really does hurt. When we acknowledge just how broken everything is, that is when uh, the good news of Jesus and the redemption that he brings and the promises of what things will be like one day shines all the brighter. This week we've had um, another uh, tragic shooting, this time Uvalde, very close to home. And and like salt in fresh wounds, people moved so quickly to political talking points. Whatever their politics were. Skipping past the grief or trying to weaponize others' grief. We've got to do better. I'm going to conclude with a uh, prayer of lament I actually wrote after the shooting at the Sutherland Springs Church November 5th, 2017. But it applies again. And then we'll conclude with the Lord's Prayer. It says, It is the same song, and there have been too many verses. It always follows the same familiar refrain. We are shocked, but deep down we're not really not after all this time. We are heartbroken. We want to know more about those who are lost. We imagine ourselves and our loved ones and think, what if? We are afraid. What if hits too close to home? It wasn't us this time, though in a way it always is. But next time? We look for patterns, excuses, ways that this situation is different enough from our own that maybe it won't happen here, but maybes don't provide enough comfort. 
We are angry. Someone is to blame. We become curious about the perpetrator or perpetrators, the motives, the methods, the weapons. How could they do this? Why, who could or should have stopped them? We blame them. We blame policies. We blame systems. We blame security. We try to convince ourselves that if we can identify who did wrong this time, then it won't happen again. But we're not stupid. We know that this will happen again and again and again. It is the pattern, not of our modern societies, but of all humanity. And we know deep down, though never want to admit, that we are all to blame. Not for the specific event, but for the pattern itself. And so we long for hope. We long for a day when death doesn't win, for a day when fear is absent forever, for a day when true justice is accomplished, for a day when grief is swallowed up with joy. And yet, for some reason, we choose to repeat the pattern. To trust the one who has given us reason for hope seems too easy. It's not. Or too simple. It's not. Or too countercultural. It always is. God, help us. Help us to grieve properly. Guide our broken hearts to wake us up to the brokenness of our world. Wake us up to your way of dealing with the brokenness, a way that is so different from our ways. Help us to respond appropriately and not react fearfully. Help us to arm ourselves with your armor, not ours. Give us the strength to love our enemies, both personal and political. Help us to long for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our hearts and in our communities, and on this earth as it is in heaven. Help us to live in line with this kingdom of yours now. And help us to pray constantly and honestly. Or teach us to pray. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. The one who himself taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. The kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.